1: foundation arvind gupta the reason that people are talking about india is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years enjoy this week's show welcome to behind the markets here on business radio powered by the ward school i'm jeremy schwartz global head of research at wisdom tree my co-host is Warren Fines Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. We also have Lee Chen Ren, director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor Wisdom Tree. Our discussion today is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show today. We have the head of research at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, talking about some of his work, uh, very interesting pieces on the the end of the sixty forty last year, uh, and, and so we're going to update for what's been going on this year, and, and they also have a, a great monthly publication that just talked major themes in the market. We're going to hit on what is uh, Jared and his team focusing on, uh, but Professor Siegel, a lot happening this week. we got the Fed unveiling a new inflation target. We've got the Republican Convention. How are you feeling on the markets?
3: Yeah, uh, an awful lot going on. Well, let's, let's put the, the Fed front and center. And as everyone knows that has been listening to our show over the last four months, uh, just basically put in, you know, black and white, uh, what I exactly said was happening. The fed is not going to start acting against inflation. Um, as it rises above their 2% target. Uh, uh, this is a, uh, 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 they acknowledged that uh the uh phillips curve criteria which says that when unemployment is below some normal level which they call u star uh inflationary pressures uh, begin they 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 uh, admit it has not worked at all um uh and uh they're basically abandoning it, so they're no longer going to look at that unemployment rate. I'm, it was interesting whether they'll even ask that uh, in the FOMC meeting, which is coming up, which is normally one of the things that they ask about. Uh, they they said uh, falls short of full employment. Well, you know, it's hard to know. Well, what is exactly full employment? But we're not going to have full employment in terms of getting back to three and a half percent unemployment for years. So they're they're going to let that inflation go i think it's going to go quite a bit more uh... as i've been saying uh... Than they expect or really want but the political pressures will be extreme for them to to let it uh, to let it ride um, uh... they they didn't give a quantitative measure of how much above two percent uh... doing some of my own calculations The last 10 years, their uh, inflation uh, indicator that they use, the PCE deflator, uh, has averaged 1.6%. So cumulatively, we've fallen, uh, what what should we say, Uh, four-tenths of a percent per year or four percentage points cumulatively below. So to get back to that average, we have to go 4% cumulatively for a year. I think we're going to go more than that. Um, but that that it, it at least is one measure, but they they said they're not putting a numerical measure on which is kind of touchy-feely and uh actually I think lowers confidence in their ability to to squeeze down uh on inflation. Now this is great for the stock market. I've been saying this more liquidity Moderate inflation again, not extreme inflation, moderate inflation um, uh, you know we see the dollar dropping today, particularly not so much on on yesterday today uh and we see a big rebound by gold um also today um this is good this is basically good for stocks yield actually went up into the high uh, seventy basis points range on ten years but have fallen down uh, a, a, a little bit, uh, basically today. But this just codifies what we've been saying. This is definitely uh, good for stocks. Um, on the political front, uh, we have a tightening election. Uh, I thought it was a, an effective uh, speech by Trump uh, yesterday, rallying his base. Uh, the 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 main play to independence uh is the violence in the cities uh i believe it was a big mistake by the dems and biden not to address that and come down for law and order uh if trump can win in november it will be because the democrats do not effectively address the law and order uh, issue. Uh, the uh, odds markets have definitely tightened uh, 57.47 for uh, the president, 54.48 for the Senate. Now, both of these were almost 65.35 three or four weeks ago. Um, so they've definitely tightened up on the odds. Uh, there's still a lot to go. Um, uh, 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 debates, uh, coming up, um, uh, uh, and the rest, uh, he did, pro- uh, on the virus front, of course, Trump promised a virus. I've been saying there is uh, going to be a, I mean, promised a vaccine. I said that there is going to be a vaccine, um, uh, approved. I think it, I think there will be a vaccine that will be approved. I, whether it's November 3rd, I've always said year end, um, but there may actually be some approval uh, that might be uh, come uh, even earlier and and further therapeutics. Uh, we do see the um the rates going down in all the so-called hotspot states. Um, deaths remain very low. One should remember, though, that despite the dramatic drop in deaths from this, uh, virus uh it's a serious virus and we're we're getting reports um, um of some people with serious heart damage or change in heart structure as a result of this, even young people. This is still something you don't wanna get and something that uh, <laughs> you know, oh, I'm gonna survive it. Uh, so, you know, the uh, measures still have to be taken, but, uh, the run of the therapeutics and, and potential vaccines makes the future promising and the death rate going so way down from it. Um, uh, is also, you know, uh, I think, uh, going to encourage the reopening, uh, trade going forward. Um, uh, we should also mention uh, the surprise. In my sense, a The surprise uh, reformulation of the Dow Jones av- Industrial Average, as you know, it's the world's oldest continuously computed uh, financial market average, actually. And um, uh, I was on CNBC commenting on it right uh, you know, hours later. Uh, I said this is the uh, first time I believe in memory where a company has joined this average. Um, uh, Dow Jones, by the way, is the one that does pick the 30 companies. Um, Salesforce.com, that is not known to most Americans. <laughs> um, uh, most of the others are always giants uh, that are known. Uh, their names are known. This is, this is quite a change uh... by the way um, the the dow jones should change to an equally weighted average i mean I, I you know you don't have to go to capitalization weighted but this price averaging is really skewing it that's in terms of what they pick i mean google can't go on because it's a sixteen hundred dollars stock um, amazon's a thirty four hundred dollars stock uh... so they can't go on if you had an equally weighted none of this would 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 matter, and they would be able to balance it uh, that way. But that's that's of course a, uh, another uh, issue. Um, uh, we we should mention, um, by the way, uh, you know Shinzo Abe uh, re- uh, announcing uh, the um, prime minister of uh, Japan announcing his resignation um, uh, because of health. Uh, concerns. It has affected uh, the, the Japanese market moderately. It was down 1.4% uh, yesterday. Um, uh, he, of course, we remember that that um, he was very much in favor of quantitative easing, um, bringing the yen down, which he did successfully, but then went back up. Uh, he did do a lot positive for the economy. Um the Japanese economy, um, and uh, n- you know, we'll see whether his successor. Um, I'm not. I'm not an expert on on Japanese uh, uh, politics, um, but um, whether his successor will continue some of his um, uh, economic plans. Uh, the U.S. market, uh, it, it, the, the liquidity. I mean, it's on a roll. Whether it's overvalued or not, uh, it's still on a roll. It shows no sign of weakness whatsoever, no sign of vulnerability uh, whatsoever. I mean, obviously, there will come a time when there will be events that will trigger a decline, because. Uh, um, but uh, uh, we are there. We are not there. Uh, we are also, uh, uh, Jim Kramer uh, said that he has never seen anything like that and, and seemed to imply that, uh, the, in, including the 1999 20 internet bubble, um, I still claim whether you want to call this moderate, overvalued or not, this is nothing like the 99 2000 internet bubble. Uh, We were selling at uh, 30 times forward earnings, than technology was at 80 to 90 times in the S&P. We are nowhere near those levels, and most importantly, you know, Treasuries were five, six, seven percent instead of zero. Um, And uh, so, you know, the the alternative investment world was totally. Uh, different, as I pointed out many times, is the first time in, in his in really history outside of some abnormal events that the tips rate, uh, which was over four percent then, it's now under minus one, was over four. So, it was actually bigger than the um, earnings yield on the uh, stock market right now. The earnings yield on the stock market is four and a half to five percent. And the tips rate is minus one, still a very large margin. It was inverted in 1999 and early 2000. So there's no comparison of of uh, that period to now. I'm not saying it can't get there, but it is nowhere near there at the current time.
1: Uh, let me just re- remind our listeners, we've been doing a new feature. Uh, you can listen uh, and, and send in a question to Professor Siegel to address. We have an email address, ask S-I-E-G-E-L, S-I-E-G-E-L at wisdomtree.com. You could, you could write some questions. Um, I, I'm going to try to summarize briefly two questions into one, um, where people, you know, given your talk about how robust the market has been, people worried, has it gone up too much? Is it too late to allocate to the U.S.? And at a sort of similar related point, uh, somebody written in a few different structural factors that they thought was impacting valuations from um, the indexing trends, you know how many public companies are, there's much less public companies, a few other things. Any commentary on is it too late and and what's what's impacting these valuations? Uh,
3: well, the liquidity and prospective liquidity is impacting uh, the valuations um, and, and an extraordinarily low. Uh, interest rates that is accompanying uh, that I do not think it's too late to be international and we've been saying that um, uh, especially with the weakness in the dollar and much lower valuations abroad um, so uh, uh, you know yes nothing can beat this type of run in the us stock market but it you know it it is with more risk at this point don't don't shun it but uh, I, I think internationally, uh, it's, it's uh, still very good. Uh, you're talking about indexing. I do not believe that um, indexing is a cause of uh, over- or undervaluation. It is a most efficient way for people to hold an equity position. Um, indexing, the ability to index uh lowers transactions cost and this has been a 50-year trend since when vanguard started indexing and now is more and more and more so in that sense the ability to hold the market at a lower cost is a positive feature for valuation but in and of itself you, you know the, the the speculation of people are thinking about Robin Hood or everyone going into Tesla continuously the bubbles that that will develop in individual stocks of course clearly have nothing to do Tesla is not even in the S and P five hundred um, so uh, and it's you know one of the, the the remarkable strong stock at the present time and I don't it's not not in any of the popular uh, indexes that we have.
1: Well, Professor, thank you for some commentary to start the show. We'll, we'll talk to you again next week.
3: Absolutely. Thank you, Jeremy.
1: Uh, you're listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio, SiriusXM 132. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, and I'd like to welcome this week's guest to the show. Jared Woodard is the head of the Research Investment Committee, the Rick Report for people who follow the Merrill Research Team. This Rick Report has been one of the longstanding research pieces, one of the most important pieces that comes out all the time. Jared, thank you so much for joining the show.
0: Jeremy, thanks very much. I'm really glad to be with you. Uh,
1: so we, thanks for the patience. Professor went on a little longer than normal. Um, but uh, give us some of your sense. You've been, uh, when, when you think about the current market environment, one of the things I want to talk about is a, a big piece you guys wrote uh, last year called The, the Death of the 6040. I think that's sort of so timely, something that we've been echoing. Professor Siegel's been talking about a lot as well. Uh, but maybe give us your current sense of what's happening in the markets, and then we could drill into some of those big themes.
0: Absolutely. Well, yeah, it's, um, this has obviously been, I think, a, a really breathtaking year on, on the decline, but then on the on the upside, too. And um, our, our focus lately has been um, really in sort of two areas. Number one is has been sort of more short term about uh, the, the scale and the, and the prospects for recovery, not just in markets, but in the real economy. Um, uh, you know, the Professor Siegel mentioned, uh, you know, prospects for a vaccine, for treatments. Um, we've been, I think, equally focused on what's been happening in Washington around, you know, fiscal stimulus and, and new policy measures. That's something that we get a lot of incoming questions from clients and from investors about constantly. But but just as importantly, from our perspective, um, is what happens after we, we come out of the other side of this pandemic, which we you know, we think we, we will. Um, and what kind of market, what kind of economy um, do we end up with you know, on the other side of it? And what are the prospects for growth and, and for markets there? Um, we kind of have three scenarios really in mind which we've been uh, doing a lot of work on this year so once we get through the pandemic you know we see one of one three paths really that that uh, that we could follow you know number one would be we'll call it stagnation the path of low growth low interest rates low inflation low wages uh, low profits for most companies and uh relatively few winners in the market this is the world that we've been in obviously for the past 10 to 20 years secular stagnation in a world of a handful of, of big winners in equities and a lot of industries and companies that have struggled uh, otherwise. You know, if, if In the best case, if we get a vaccine, if we get treatments, if we get more policy stimulus, our contention is that a return to the, this kind of stagnant um, uh, environment in most developed economies, including the U.S., is unfortunately the most likely outcome, you know, thinking about 2021 uh, and beyond. But there are two other scenarios I think we're, we're thinking about, it could have some pretty dramatic implications for portfolios. Um, so the second scenario would be stagflation, um, including really volatile turn in, in markets, uh, more frictions, maybe more inflation. There are a few different uh, catalysts that might generate that kind of a, uh, an environment. The, the, the number one would have to be uh, changes in, in the relationship of the rest of the world to, to China. We can talk maybe more about that later in a little more detail, but there's a lot of different ways in which uh, you know, fractious relations with with China economically and financially can generate some some big volatility in markets. But I would think too about prospects for um, higher regulation, especially around the tech sector. Um, potentially more uh, you know taxes and other financial frictions. There's a number of different ways you can end up with a much more volatile uh, and, and frictioned uh, market than we've enjoyed in the past um, decade or two. So that require would require some meaningful changes, I think, to portfolios. But then the number three scenario, and this is the one maybe people are, are the least prepared for, um, so if number one is stagnation, number two is stagnation. You know the third one's got to rhyme, Jeremy. We call it elevation, which simply means a world of higher growth, higher productivity, potentially higher inflation driven actually by demand, the good kind of inflation, um, and a very different environment for portfolios. And This is, this is a world in which governments that have been uh, kind of taking a, a laissez-faire approach to their to to industry for a long time um, might wake up, uh, and, and corporate leaders who've taken a laissez-faire approach to to growth and productivity might might wake up and and realize that investing in ourselves, and each other, in really meaningful ways around the world, um, but 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 first and foremost in our local economies um, can have some pretty profound effects. We did a big report uh, earlier this year about you know a very short history of what has happened in the past when countries have pursued. Uh, a more aggressive, intentional program of, of investment and capex and, and research and development to boost productivity. And if you look actually at every major developed country in the world today, whether it's Japan or South Korea uh, or Germany or the United States, there are um, examples in every history in modern times of, of of kind of partnerships between the private sector and the public sector um, to generate new new R and D, new technology, you know, new productivity. Um, and, uh, and so we see great potential, actually, on that front. We see a lot of bipartisan ep- efforts happening in Congress this year. Funding for new semiconductor manufacturing is a great example. bill that just passed recently. And, uh, and we, we tracked about 20 different other um, policy proposals that have bipartisan support um, designed to boost productivity. And, and, and so we, when we get to the other side of this pandemic, we do see you know, new policy measures designed to spur new CapEx, new research and development. Well, to be honest with you, there's almost nothing more bullish that we can find for economic growth and productivity and for investments than that kind of um, you know cooperation around uh, new new avenues of investment and development. And so that's a that's a world in which we could see meaningfully higher growth, uh, higher capex, higher productivity. And those kinds of portfolios are very unlike the portfolios that many investors uh, have today. It would be a good surprise, but one that would again require a little bit of a rethink of the way people may have their asset allocated, you know, at at this moment.
1: That's going to be really interesting to drill into some of those details. I mean, one of the charts from your latest piece was, you know, the world is all one trade today, that basically everything is all part of the same narrative, sort of growth versus value, us versus foreign um, bonds. Explain sort of how that's all fits together as it's really the same side of, of one theme. And then if you do have an unwind, what is the unwind and what does it have you try to go towards?
0: Well, that's right. It, it is kind of all one trade in the sense that there are relatively scarce opportunities in this world for, um, for earnings growth, uh, scarce opportunities for economic growth. And so um, investors of all types, small investors, large investors, have all essentially crowded into the same handful of positions. And while on paper, some of them sound very different, they really all tend to become much more correlated in recent years. And so whether it's investing in large cap stocks, Instead of small cap stocks, that's been a big winning trade. Investing in you know growth stocks instead of value has been a huge winning trade. You know, investing in the U.S. dollar as opposed to you know emerging market currencies, huge winning trade. Um, almost anywhere you look, the big winners versus the big losers all have become much more correlated because essentially there's just a handful of firms that can profit um, in the kind of economic environment that we're in. And what's essentially happened is that a lot of the you know, the economic base in many developed countries, um, and in China, I would add as well, you know, the middle class have been kind of hollowed out. And, and what that does to an economy is it, it leaves you with relatively scarce opportunities uh, to generate revenue. You know, when more capital is concentrated in fewer places, that just means fewer places to go, you know, to generate to generate sales. And so you end up with firms all concentrating in narrower and narrower, you know, parts of the market. Uh, and that means investors have, A narrower and narrower base of things to invest in with any, you know, reliable story to tell about future profits. And so that's how all these trades can become more correlated. The the risk to all this um, is not the normal risk of kind of a recession or some, you know, terrible outcome, but there's a different kind of risk, which is that if you do see an inflationary breakout, especially if it's coupled with a breakout in economic growth, uh, along the lines I was just referring to, whether it's from some new industrial policy, whether it's, you know, some new discovery that you know, generates, you know, better, longer lifespan their living, whatever, you know, kind of technological advance, whatever it might be, some really positive scenario that we haven't thought of yet perhaps um, that that generates a, a new outlook on growth and uh, in inflation would mean that the incredibly crowded, um, incredibly expensive assets that a lot of investors, you know, have big stakes in today would actually become much less attractive in favor of the, the, the companies and the assets that have been really big losers from you know, a couple decades of incredible inequality, incredible globalization, incredible integration in a way that, that has left made those you know opportunities really scarce. And so, um, while it's not our base case again for some you know absolute decimation of the crowded growth stocks, for example, we think there's real you know big potential in some of those firms. Um, it is a different kind of a risk and something that's certainly worth thinking about.
1: Now, um, when, when you think about the, the how you're suggesting, given all this uncertainty in these three different scenarios, uh, you know one of the other trends has been been quality type investing this year. Own quality is one of the themes. Is, is that something that you think given all the the outlooks that that if you're going to own you know equities that a, a quality filter is, is how you have to do it?
0: Absolutely. Um, th- investors who, if you just th- there's a very simple approach that worked well this year, if you look at uh, you know the companies in the S and P 500, and you go and look up their their credit to so their S and P uh, you know the, the rating on their debt, for example, and you just bought um, things that are you know rated as investment grade, and, and you looked especially at um, the higher quality within that, um, those stocks performed much better. I mean, they they have much less downside um, uh, in, in March and in April, and they have performed really well kind of in the rebound. Um, it's a really obvious, almost kind of a approach to take. It may not be the best one for every investor, but our, the point simply is that applying, whether it's that kind of a quality screen or some other filter, um, you can you know reduce your downside and still keep participation on the upside. Our colleagues in in equity strategy at, at the bank uh, had a nice piece on this earlier um, on this week, in fact, about how even for value investors, applying a quality filter can really help improve the risk you know, reward profile of, of any investments that you might make.
1: Very good. So we have you for the whole show. And I think we're going to drill into some of these themes for, you know, much more, but sort of to tease out the second half of the program, you know, one of the reports that caught my eye last year was this, the death of 60, 40 portfolio and any reactions to that report. Uh, then of course it came right before the pandemic. So, you know, so then you had the big swoon and now rebound. How are you thinking about sort of the bottom line conclusion of, of the death of the sixty forty and what it means to the different uh, research threads you guys are working on.
0: Yeah, I mean, without getting into all of it, just, yeah, I mean, I think the, the big takeaway for us is um, we're more confident than ever <laughs> on, on, the, on the big outlook for uh, potentially much higher uh, you know, interest rates over the long term, at least uh, the, the low of interest rates, let's say, you know, very likely this year. And, and the biggest conclusion of all, I think, is that the, the, the big hedging function that Treasury bonds, especially long-term Treasury bonds, have provided uh, classically in portfolios. I think that hedging function, that diversification function, is going to be much less attractive in the in the years ahead.
1: You know, this is going to be one of the most important themes: is what what changes to get that. Uh natural hedge, this sort of extra diversification they provide. Uh, this is going to be a big theme. We're going to continue talking with Jared Woodard from Bank of America, Maryland Research. You know, the, the report that caught my eye was this: the death of 6040 uh, and, and how to be positioning. And now you've got these ultra low bond yields, Jared, that make this challenge. We talked about people have been buying bonds as a diversifier, as a hedge to equities in some ways. Now, now you talk about in, in one of your pieces how this diversification was not always true. So maybe talk about what the correlation's structure of bonds and stocks were before the last two decades, how how that different and what might have been different about that that environment than today?
0: Yeah, absolutely, Jeremy. This is a great place to start because we know that, you know, there are different phases and regimes in history and and, uh, the one that we've been in recently hasn't always been the case. So a lot of the the literature, the academic literature, the industry literature that has justified that 60-40 model or other kind of conventional allocation models um is really based around you know the kind of thirty plus years of of returns in which you know treasuries have provided have provided a real hedge to to bond to to stock portfolios but if you look further back in in the history of the United States there's definitely periods where that was not the case um certainly when um, you know interest rates were higher when inflation was higher um, when when bond yields were higher um, the correlation between stocks and bonds uh, was sometimes very different and and you know we don't want to get too technical here, but um, the way the way we make this really simple for a lot of a lot of investors is to think about what you buy if you buy a Treasury bond today, and what kinds of you know outcomes can you expect to see to make a decision about whether that's a good thing to buy or not. So let's just you know the numbers very simply here: you can buy a 10-year U.S. Treasury bonds today, and you're, you're going to yield about you're yield of about 0.7 uh, percent. Now the nice thing is obviously you'll you'll get your money back. There's no there's no credit risk. Um, the problem is that uh, you're locking in an incredibly low rate, record low, in fact. Um, and this is a world in which you know, on the conservative side, market estimate of inflation at about 1.7%. So what that means is that you're losing, you know, a percentage point a year uh, on on, a, on an inflation-adjusted basis. You're essentially locking in a loss to own to own that hedge, to own that insurance. Now, that's very expensive insurance. Um, We we did some, just very simply, some numbers going back uh, a little while. If you had a dollar in the year 1950 and you bought U.S. equities um, with that dollar, uh, you'd have about $1,763 today. If, on the other hand, in the year 1950, if you could see the future, you knew that 6040 was going to be the kind of dominant model, and that's what everyone should do. And so you put, you invested in a, in a you know, U.S. equities 60%, uh, U.S. treasuries 40%. With that dollar in 1950, you'd have about $530 uh, today. So you would have missed out on some pretty dramatic uh, upside potential. And, and that's not just our, you know, data mining history. If you just look since the financial crisis, um, starting in 2009, you know, we've seen a kind of a similar profile where you know, U.S. equities have averaged about 14% um, annual returns, thereabouts anyway, and 60-40 has averaged about 10% annual returns. What that means is that you're giving up some pretty meaningful um, appreciation over the course of a business cycle in order to carry you know, that insurance sort of on an ongoing basis. It's very expensive, and, and that's why when we think about paths for the future, I think the case for really large allocations to long-term treasury bonds gets even less attractive. And there's two paths that we can envision here. With 10-year yield at 0.7%, um, it's difficult to imagine mm-hmm. it getting, you know, all the way to zero, but maybe that's possible. Maybe there's, you can squeak out a little bit more of a, of a, of a price, <laughs> price return. Um, but what's more likely, in our view, is one of two things. Either, either yields go up meaningfully, um, and we can think about lots of different ways that might happen. If the Fed decides that they're just going to let inflation run, they're not going to pursue uh, yield curve control, which is something that's been done in Japan it's been done in US history before. I'm sure that, you know, your listeners are familiar. Um, if the Fed decides to sort of let yields rise, then uh, or, or or if we do see a big breakout, as I mentioned before, in prospects for growth and productivity, something to some really big good news, that suddenly bonds become much less attractive. And you could see yields rise meaningfully. In that kind of a world, your treasuries, not only do they not hedge, they actually become a source of risk. You can in, in, endure some pretty painful... Uh, losses. And in fact, there have been some periods in history um, in which, you know, at, at a quarterly level, um, even a monthly level, to be sure, there are periods where treasuries actually became a source of risk. And so that's a scenario that, that uh, as we're thinking about. You know, we don't expect the Fed to sort of let things run incredibly wild or inflation to rise incredibly sharply. But, you know, the second path would be, let's just say yields stay flat, um, right where they are, not even a meaningful... Uh, rise, even in that kind of a world at a 0.7% uh, yield, that sure looks more like dead money than some kind of a robust portfolio hedge. Because we know that in the past, 60-40 has worked well because Treasury yields have, have dropped meaningfully. You know, bonds have rallied sharply in cases of a big recession. That happened again this year, uh, you know, to, to, be, to be to be obvious about it. And so that's uh, worth knowing. But what's also worth knowing is that there's, you know, there's a floor, Um and uh, investors have made it very clear that there is a limit to how, just how negative um, they, they, they're willing to buy. And so our, our conclusion from all that, the big takeaway is that there are better places to allocate um, capital than to simply continue buying you know, long-duration uh, bonds you know, sort of blindly. And uh, there are other places to generate yield. There are other places to, to, to um, find safety. Uh, than this one asset class. Um, given some of the risks that we can think about in the future, our, our, our t- big takeaway from that is that investors should think a little differently about how they structure portfolios and, and whether that incredibly expensive insurance is worth carrying you know, all the time.
1: Yeah, no, that's uh, one of the major themes Professor Siegel talks about all the time. And, uh, you know, I think, and now you have the Fed saying they want more than 2% inflation, this above average inflation after we've undercounted inflation for a while. So those, the market's at 1.7 on inflation, you no know, subtracting from that 70 basis points 10 year, it seems like th- that negative real return's getting worse if the Fed is uh, is trying even harder. Um, wh- when, you, when you think about the conclusions of where you want people or, or you know, how you think they should try to, diversify away from bonds what else they should be doing is it is it in your mind just allocating more to equities is it substituting other parts of the the bond market to get more juice out of the treasury yield what do you what do you think the the paths are for people
0: I, i'd like to start this way i mean with, investors are in the business of of taking prudent risks okay that you know if, if you're not if you're not you know putting your capital to work taking risks then. Then you're saving it which is fine but that's a different beast entirely so we i think the, good, the best place to start is to think about what kinds of risks do we want to take um let's just say there's three kinds of risks. there's lots more but the three big ones i think for me are, are equity risk um that participation in the you know returns and the future cash flows of a business there's credit risk which is where you you know, lend some capital and you have to take the chance that you don't get paid back and then there's interest rate risk which is the, the chance that you lock in a particular rate and then the future ends up with much higher inflation and much higher rates than, than uh, you expected. You might endure mark-to-market losses on that asset. You might endure, you know, real sort of losses. When you come, you certainly can miss out on opportunities. And so among those three buckets of risk, investors have to decide where they want to participate and, and where they don't. Uh, and that doesn't have to be the same attitude across the whole business cycle either. I think it shouldn't be, really. Um, but today, you know, we think about, The prospect of taking on big interest rate risk that looks pretty unattractive for reasons that you know we just we just mentioned um what much more attractive to to us are the other two buckets of credit risk and and equity risk Um, it's no secret that if you look at corporate bonds uh, or emerging market debt or um loans uh, or other fixed income assets some of those also have pretty low yields compared to history um but they do have some additional you know there is some additional income from the credit portion. And we'd be much more comfortable taking on some prudent credit risk in places where, you know, an investor or an investment manager can, you know, apply some expertise rather than sort of continue to pile into the interest rate bucket of the category. I would also argue that there are places in the equity market that generate, uh, can you know, you can look at from an income point of view um, that continue to look more attractive. And we, we I think we published this uh, this week, our, our chart of, you know, the percentage of of uh, S&P 500 stocks that have, um, you know, yields, dividend yields, <clears throat> greater than than the 10-year Treasury. And I think that was at a record high, again. Um, so, you know, whether it's from an equity point of view, a credit point of view, even for an income investor, I think there are places to go that, that are, you know, much more attractive. And for anyone who's thinking about the safety that Treasury bonds provide, you know, we can mention that... Um, not for a whole cycle, but for a kind of a, on a tactical point of view, cash remains <laughs> is an asset. Uh, municipal bonds, which are you know have still quite a lot of the interest rate exposure, but you can get a little bit of credit, uh, prudent credit exposure is there. I think municipal bonds can be attractive, um, and uh, and then even getting a little bit more uh, unconventional things like gold, um, which can give you very different sort of exposure, um, but can function in ways that they, they haven't done before. In this kind of negative real yield world, I think are worth thinking about as well.
1: Yeah, and that's echoing some of the comments from Siegel again. We we haven't he hasn't talked about gold positively, but one things uh, he has been talking a lot about gold, given that exactly we talk about the negative real yields. When you think about the the thing that would get bonds. Going higher. Your piece last year talked about a few pieces of the catalyst, like a housing boom, wage inflation, fiscal policy. Arguably, you've got two of the three going on right now with fiscal, you know, from the pandemic and and likely to just continue in some ways. And then the housing market has been, you know, maybe that's one of the positive surprises. Uh, Maybe it's just the the demographics playing out and, you know, spurred on by the pandemic. But do you see that? Is that, uh, do you see some of those things being being positive for yields starting to spike higher?
0: Absolutely. I think that's probably the, the best argument, actually, for why um, investors should think twice about locking in very low interest rates you know, for a very long time because um, it, you know, it's worth mentioning going back to sort of some big fundamentals, and one of the big fundamentals for us is that, that markets are a creation of, of law, ultimately. They're a creation of communities that come together and, and make some commitments to each other. Well, one of the commitments that um, politicians in both parties have made this year is, is that they're not going to let this kind of exogenous shock, this pandemic, you know, um, kind of coming out from the left field and the other part of the world, you know, ruin uh, our economy and ruin the livelihoods of, of many people and many companies. That's a kind of a commitment to, to support incomes, to support business revenues, to, to keep everyone, you know, held together um, as much as we can to figure things out. And, you know, whatever your politics are, I think that's an unquestionably good thing from an economics point of view, we know it's a good thing because we know that um, even excluding the most recent case, we know that historically, when when governments you know spend in certain areas, they can reap rewards that more than pay for those costs. For example, historically, the multiplier effect on supporting incomes, whether it's for houses, uh, for, for for households, or you know, or for for um, businesses, every dollar of spending on those kinds of measures can generate dollar and fifty dollar sixty dollar seventy of GDP in other words those investments more than pay for themselves they actually generate you know more growth uh, on top of that you end up with a, a, a better debt profile in terms of debt to GDP than you would if you'd done nothing at all it's a point that really fiscally austere folks I think have have, have always failed to appreciate that you know markets and economies are, are you know social enterprises so if we keep the rule of law intact if we keep you know uh, conditions intact to, to grow over the long term we actually can do much better than if we just sort of commit to austere um, you know uh, conditions for everyone the, the really bullish scenario though Jeremy is when you you start thinking about um, investments and reforms on supply sort of things we increase the potential for long-term productivity so I mentioned supporting incomes you get the kind of 1.5 1.7 type multiplier the really eye-popping numbers uh, are when you you make big investments in the future, whether it's, you know, R&D into new technology, whether it's uh, um, incentivizing um, new capital investments in, in productive firms, or creating infrastructure, or healthcare, or other kinds of broad benefits that can actually spur broad-based economic growth. Historically, when when the public sector invests in those kinds of enterprises, every dollar of of investment can generate, you know, a dollar ninety to even three dollars of GDP. Um, and that's why I say, uh, in many ways, the United States and, and big parts of the developed world have been riding off of the fumes of Cold War era spending, especially when it comes to research and development and, and, and new productive technology. There's some really big investments made there. In fact, if you think about the smartphone, um, one of my favorite uh, economists has a nice book about this. You, there's, you take apart all the components of the smartphone, whether it's the touchscreen or the GPS, uh, the Internet components, all the major new innovations there were actually developed uh, through public institutions, whether it's universities, Department of Energy, the military, a lot of it from Cold War era funding or, or stuff that came after. When you get those big public investments, um, not sort of handouts to, to political cronies, but I'm talking about you know, investment in productive uh, future technology, um, and then you hand it off to the private sector to sort of make the most of it, you know, to turn it into something really valuable and profitable, Um, incredible things can happen. And the reason I'm, you know, maybe, maybe a little bit concerned about the near term, but actually pretty bullish for the medium and the long term is that I see happening, you know, politically a change from that idea of simply extracting as much profit as we can, you know, in any given quarter toward instead thinking more about investments uh, for the future. And as I said before, I think this is um, a bipartisan effort in ways that it hasn't been for a very long time. It's not just, military technology anymore either. It's,
2: you know, alternative energy.
0: It's new forms of industrial uh, engineering. It's it's ways of making things more efficient. Very bullish stuff. As it happens, I think you're going to see markets reprice their long-term assumptions about prospects for growth, prospects for productivity. And in that kind of a world, as I say, the big losers from globalization, the big losers from deflation, um, sectors like energy and industrials and financials, Um, can suddenly become the big winners.
1: That'll be really interesting to watch and see how the political dynamics come together to support that. I mean, I think you definitely, the, the fiscal gates have opened and now trying to figure out where uh, do they put that money to work most efficiently? It's going to be very interesting to watch navigate over the next, the next season. We're, we're talking with Jared Woodard, who's the head of the Research Investment Committee at Bank of America Global Research. Jared, one of the things that I thought also um, you know, might be interesting, you know, you've talked a, a little bit at the beginning of the show about how the China-U.S. relationship might be changing and, and arguably perhaps China is doing some of this type of spending that you're talking about and they've been, been ushering in a sort of technology cohort that arguably gives our technology companies a run for their money. Uh, any sense of that, and then there's a lot of d- dynamics, political dynamics there. I, we still have Li Chen on the line, I believe, and we'll get her to comment on on some things on on some of the, the political tensions. But uh, what's your your high level view of the U.S.-China relationship and and how that's that's coming into the mix?
0: Yeah, I think our sense is that the U.S. and China are on a um, have been on a kind of a collision course for a while, and and the U.S. and other Western countries um, kind of were, we're actually in a conflict that they didn't even realize they were fighting um, and, and only just started to, to sort of wake up. Um, China's made in 2025 you know, um, uh, plan, which is essentially import substitution, essentially you know, cutting out uh, Western firms from um, the Chinese supply chain, Chinese economy is something that uh, caught a lot of people's attention and I think spurred a lot of this in ways that hadn't been appreciated before. What's happening this year, our big sort of call on this really since I think, February, has been the realization among uh, many other, not just Western countries, but it's also Japan and and India and South Korea and other partners, um, that what was a trade war, I think, is rapidly becoming something else, becoming a capital war, um, because, you know, trade uh, conflicts and trade negotiations are very complicated, very difficult to enforce, difficult to monitor. Capital markets are much easier operationally, and they're also an area in which, the United States and other countries, I think, have considerably more leverage. And so you've seen this happening now in the news. We've had increasingly folks kind of join us in this view over the past several weeks. Um, but I think it's been a pretty clear-cut case for a while that you'd see shifts toward things like not just financial sanctions but blocking um, access to U.S. capital markets. I think the crown jewel, from China's Chinese perspective, is getting access to U.S. household investors. And that's something that many folks... Um, in, 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 in the U.S., in both political parties, are very sensitive to prevent. Um, but what's really interesting is that the changes you've seen in other countries as well, kind of joining, uh, joining in this. Um, uh, Taiwan, I think, most recently tightened rules on how much Chinese capital is going to be allowed to, to come into Taiwan, uh, echoing similar measures from Japan, from uh, from India. You've got Germany and the I.A.K. You know, pursuing some other measures along these lines because they realize that. That uh, things have been really skewed, and they've been sort of countries have been losing control over their their own industrial base. Uh, I think the the Defense Department, of the U.S. put out a report um, last year. I think it was profiling all the different areas in which, even for essential military equipment, it was impossible to acquire that equipment uh, domestically. In, in in some cases, there was only foreign suppliers. In some cases, only one foreign supplier. In many cases, only that only foreign supplier was a Chinese supplier, and you don't have to be you know, calling for any kind of explosive military conflict from a, a national defense perspective to be uncomfortable with the prospect of not being able to you know, make your own bullets, as it were. Uh, so there's been a realization, and it's not just uh, on the right or on the left, but a realization that um, across Western economies, having a robust, broad industrial base is absolutely essential. And the folks who had promised that globalization would sort of take care of all this and would smooth everything out you know, proved to be to be wrong. And so you're seeing, I think, a policy shift that's been years in the making. It's probably going to be years in the making still. But as it happens, it means some big shifts in supply chain, big shift in capital expenditure. Um, we put out a report in the department uh, um, recently arguing that for um, firms that have operations in China to shift production out of China, except for, you know, production meant for the domestic Chinese market. But if you were to shift everything else out, uh, into other regions, either onshore or move it to, to allies. Uh, that would cost about a trillion dollars over five years, and would have a very negligible effect on you know for return on equity and other kind of profitability measures. In other words, not nearly as expensive as people had thought. And so that's why we've seen actually I think in 90% of our industry coverage we've seen firms already adopting what they call a China plus one strategy of you know Chinese production for the Chinese market, moving production elsewhere for you know, markets around the world. We think that trend is only going to accelerate. And as it does, again, I think there's going to be some industries and some uh, sectors that, that do well in that kind of a world. In many cases, firms that might not have done as well uh, in recent decades, but might see their fortunes start to change.
1: Let me bring in Lee Chen first. We only have a few more minutes here, uh, but Lee Chen, you, you talked a little bit about, you know, the one of the, the current political tensions is, are they going to delist the companies in the U.S.? Uh, and, and sort of Jared talked about one of the, the access to the U.S. capital markets is one of the, the pros for, for China. Give us your current read of that situation. And you and you put together a piece out today saying six reasons not to worry about the delisting. But, but give us your, your quick recap there.
2: Yes, thank you. And actually, I agree with general that, uh, and we've been talking about it on the radio a lot. Says that the conflict is much broader than trade. It's going to be uh, across board you know, economics. But in terms of the uh, capital conflict, um, there are many. Aspects of the capital complex. The, the listing part, I probably take a little bit a uh, different view. I don't think that's uh, a significant risk, and and the reason is pretty simple. Um, if you look at most of Chinese companies, they are either traded in in New York or traded in um, Hong Kong stock exchange. For uh, example, Tencent, it was not traded uh, in, in New York, and it it, it was able to get significant uh, capital uh, to, to support its growth, and. So I think the for the companies like in in our you know ex day zone Chinese uh index um the top two top 10 uh only four of the companies alibaba JD and NetEase were traded um you know listed in New York but the truth is they they were uh, you know they've diversified so last year and and only two months ago for NetEase, is three of their companies already dual listed are uh, in Hong Kong. So for investors who invest in, uh, you know, in the mutual fund or ETFs, they won't even notice much because it will be a little bit like corporate action of exchanging shares. So I personally think that there, it. it I agree. You know, there will be significant conflicts, uh, and I, you know, we've taken these views ever since I joined the radio that the conflict is not just not just trade, not just. Um, uh, you know short term, it's going to be decades in the making. But on this listing, and as I, at my blog, uh, I listed in, in pretty significant, um, you know, details in terms of I, I personally don't believe the listing itself uh, poses much risk.
1: Well, Jared, uh, this, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for taking time to be with on, be with us on behind the markets. Any final thoughts on where they can find access to the, to your research?
0: Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And anyone who's a Merrill Lynch client, in fact, uh, from the the smallest account to the largest, you know, gets gets access to our work, Um, institutional clients, uh, of course, as well, and nonprofits. So if you've got a relationship, whether it's online or with an advisor, and you want to know more about research from myself or our department, um, you know, just get in touch, and we're we're very happy to accommodate.
1: We have to go. Thank you so much, Jared Lee Chen. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Have a great week, everybody.